Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Jahan Jones. It's your girl, Taryn Finley. And it's your boy, Shakir Ramblay. So I'm from New York. And of course, that means I have a lot of Nigerian friends. And everyone's talking to me this week about NSARS. So we got to talk about it. I'm sure some of you are seeing it across your timelines and you're wondering, is this another virus or sickness I have to worry about? No, it's not. It's an acronym calling for the end of Nigeria's special anti-robbery squad. And it's about police brutality and all the various power dynamics among Nigeria's corrupt law enforcement. Black people all over the world are speaking out against SARS, including some of your favorite entertainers. Drake, Wizkid, and my girl Estelle. But we'll get into that a little later with our guests because there's another power dynamic that's happening this week. Supreme Court Justice hearings. Jahan, what you got for us? Yes, the confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Now, y'all, I refer to her as the final boss of Karens. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You know in video games, (laughs) when you're playing Mario and Mario finally reaches Bowser at the end, well... Amy Coney Barrett is the supreme Karen. If you got a right, she's coming to take it away, y'all. I'm scared. You scared? I'm scared. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm over here like, damn, like, do I need to, like, go and re-up on my IUD early? Do I need to, like, what what kind of preparation do I need to take in order to do this? Because it's like, damn, y'all are really rushing it. And it feels very much the opposite of when um, we saw Merrick Garland, Obama was trying to get him confirmed and it took literally forever. And then that didn't end up happening. So it's like, this shit is just like not fair. Yeah. It's not fair. Like, I don't even know what to do or how to prepare. I'm scared. I mean, there's nothing that we can do but pray and hope for the best. I watched the hearings, and the thing about watching the hearings, Amy seems like a sweet lady. She seems nice. She seems friendly. But her becoming a potential justice has real implications, of course. She can take take away Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, which will leave millions uninsured. And I don't know what to do. I don't know how to feel about it. I don't know what mm. to think about it. And, and to your point, we've all experienced white people who are polite but also oppressive. I mean, mm-hmm. so maybe that's what is most triggering watching the confirmation hearings is that it's, it involves so much gaslighting. Trump has made no mistake about why he nominated her to begin with. He said that he hopes she will be able to help him secure a re-election through uh, non-democratic means. So even as we go through this process where people are asking her about her adherence to the Constitution and the reverence she has for all of uh, the historical documents in American history, we're looking at somebody who is who is unmistakably going to be used as a tool to regress the human rights that have been achieved over the last 30, 40 years. And you know how dedicated Republican senators are to getting her confirmed because they are risking catching and spreading COVID uh, to conduct her confirmation hearings this week. And what I want to know, y'all, is how is it that the NBA is better at controlling the spread of coronavirus than members of Congress? 
Child. I, I know y'all watched the NBA Finals, yeah? Child, you know. Oh, you all know that. Games. See, we we Le- all six games. This is a LeBron. This is a LeBron James household. We stand LeBron over here, right? I know. Listen, I know y'all feel me on this. Go ahead, T. I know you from uh, you from Ohio. You know, he is hometown hero. Yes, I'm not from Akron. I'm from Dayton. But when you're from Ohio, the whole state is your hometown, okay? LeBron literally, pardon my French, he put his dick on the table. And he let y'all know who the fuck he is. Like, I really, like, I'm so unapologetic about how I stand for LeBron because (laughs) that man, like, literally, he makes sure that he gets the job done on and off the court. And I think that... This performance, like not only four NBA titles on three different teams, but also four MVPs. Like you cannot mm. tell me shit tell about him. my king. Y'all gonna respect this man, okay? <laughs> we gonna him. go ahead and, and toss to this sock real quick. Tell Let's toss to this sock real quick. We just want our respect. Rob wants his respect. <laughs> Coach Vogel wants his respect. Our organization wants their respect. Laker Nation wants their respect. And I want my damn respect too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I think we all creative people. Like, as a creative person, you got to respect the savant that is LeBron James. You just look at the way he plays. I'd be telling people he ameliorates the floor to how he wants it. He'd be setting the environment to exactly the way he wants it. He brings the tempo of the game to exactly how it suits for him. He he doesn't seem rushed. And that self-control is just something that as a creator, whether you making uh sculptures or whether you paint in pictures you produce in music just that sense of self-control he has where he's always in command of the floor that is just something that just spilled over into his personal life as well he's just in such command of of himself it seems and, and that's it's so admirable. intentional yeah. it's so intentional he lifts as he climbs you know not only you see his um relationship that feels very much like a big brotherhood with ad and really uh, so many other of his teammates on prior teams I, I think that you know it cannot be understated his impact the fact that he did this the year like you know brought the lakers a title the year that kobe died he has uh you know made sure that this school i promise school in his hometown of akron is performing phenomenally, you know, in within the bubble and, you know, even outside, he does the social justice thing. He wears the names of police brutality victims on his back and he makes sure to uplift them. Like, j- y'all, I really could like just sing poetic about LeBron all day, every day. But also the fact that like, this is really a monumental time for the NBA. Like what they mm. did, like you said at the top is, has really been, it's, it's unprecedented. You know, I can speak as someone who is not a big basketball lover and my little brother's obsessed with LeBron James. And I think that why so many black men look up to him is because he defies the court. Right. He is greater than this one sport for so many people because of the fact that he's an activist. He's a father. He's a husband. I mean, I'm sure y'all saw that he just built this gigantic playhouse for his daughter. He has the Zuri. show. <laughs> yeah. I'm the such hostess. a Zuri James stan. Like, she really is the MVP here. She won. The and, and then in addition to that, he has The Shop, you know, a show that kind of hosts amazing conversations that Black men often have at barbershops. So he's mm-hmm. just doing the damn thing and he's the best at what he does. And how can you not love someone like that? You know, and we just got to give him some respect for stunting as well because for years, Lakers fans in particular hated this man. And he yep. played the long game. He played the long game of Machiavellian takeover of their organization. 
and now he is their son. Bow before your Ooh. king, LA. Bow oh, before your king. Okay. No, for real. And I'm going to be honest. I'm not even a Lakers fan. I've never been a Lakers fan, but I'm always going to be a LeBron fan. Okay. When, Facts. He, when he went to the Heat, I was I was a Heat fan Facts. by by proxy. Um, always going to root for, you know, hometown, you know, or home state, Cleveland, Cavs. But LeBron will consistently shut you the hell up and let you know he he got this. He got the will. He knows what the fuck he's doing. And for that, he will always be my king. If you don't like LeBron, you racist. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, my friends. But when we get back, we talk to Osai Ajigo about the police brutality in Nigeria that has sparked a millennial movement. She's Nigeria's country director for Amnesty International from Abuja. Stay with us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Violent protest in Nigeria has recently taken center stage in the headlines and timelines. I'm sure you've all seen the hashtag and SARS or read stories about the violent clashes in response to government-sanctioned police violence. We are tired. The youth, the youth in Nigeria, we are saying enough is enough. We are saying we want to be heard. So now we are tired. Now we want to take responsibility. We have a government that is accountable to us. We, you cannot be watching white SARS, white police officers that are supposed to be protecting our lives are killing us day by day. And we keep making noise about it. We keep making noise about it. The reason why I'm out here is because I'm scared. Tomorrow I could get a bullet in the air. My sister could get a bullet in the air. My friends could get a bullet in the air. Someone that I don't even know could get a bullet in the air. So we are tired. We are fed up. Joining us today is human rights lawyer and Amnesty's International Country Director of Nigeria, Osai Ujiko, to shed light about the demand from Nigerian civilians to end police brutality. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this very, very important issue. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here today. Let's start with some background about SARS. And SARS is a call to action that began in 2017 on Twitter. We're now in a global pandemic with coronavirus, and NSARS is a major movement that is getting worldwide attention. But why is NSARS trending now, and what has been happening? Well, NSARS is something that has been on for the last five years. So it kind of peaked during this period because, you know, everyone is coming out of the COVID lockdowns and trying to get their lives back together. And we've already recorded quite a lot of violence by state agents during the lockdown. It was actually the shooting of a young man in a state in Nigeria, Ugeli, um, in Delta State, that led to these latest protests. This was just like a tipping point. And like, we need to get it fixed right now because we don't want to continue like this with this sort of uncertainty and fear. 
Who's the most vulnerable demographic that SARS has targeted and why is that? Uh, so for over the years, it's mostly been men. What we've discovered in the last two, three years, because Amnesty released uh, research in June 2020, that they were targeting specifically young men between 17 and 30. And this is because there's been a lot of information out there about how we're getting a lot of netpreneurs, but also there's been some cyber crimes happening all over the world. And there's this tendency to profile young men as being cyber criminals. But the SARS, which means Special Anti-Robbery Squad, are supposed to tackle armed robbery and serious crimes related to that. So it's quite surprising that they feel it's their role now to be tackling cybercrime. But that said, even profiling young men means that even some of the issues we've seen happening in the States, like with young Black men, it's also the reality of many young people in Nigeria. So that's also why the majority of the protesters on the streets are young people. And I must say, both young men and women are standing up together to say, you know, enough of this, end SARS, end SARS now. We want the police to respect us a bit more and respect our human rights. Mm -hmm. I think it can be difficult sometimes for people to really grasp the direness of the situation in Nigeria. Recently, the World Internal Security and Police Index rated Nigeria's police force as the worst in the world. I believe American police might have something to say with that. But my question to you is, can you explain to us what it is that makes these police forces in Nigeria so corrupt and brutal against its own people? Uh, so in the first place, we need to recognize that um, Nigeria, incidentally, we're celebrating 60 years of independence from the United Kingdom this month also. So we inherited colonial laws, and those laws were created actually to keep the colonized people in check and to actually prevent dissent. So we kind of transferred the same attitude the colonial authorities had to our people as well. And over time, Nigeria has been under military rule. And under military rule, there was a deliberate attempt to keep the police in check because the military wanted to be the ones controlling all aspects of security. And mm. so it, it wasn't something that just started today. Gotcha. But as we were beginning our transition to civilian rule, we began to see that the police was getting a little bit of prominence in terms of the role they are supposed to, to play. But because for so many years, their structures have been eroded, um, they don't get the kind of funding the military gets. You find that a lot of corruption, when you look at the police force in terms of bribery, in terms of ways in which they undermined the justice system so that they can just survive began to be the norm. So in 1992, when the Special Anti-Robbery Squad unit was developed within the police, the aim was fight crime. When you succeed, we would get um, an elite unit that everyone can be proud of. But over time, this elite unit now became a sort of rogue unit because people saw it as a way to quickly get promoted. And also when they saw that the proceeds of crime were not properly monitored by the authorities, it meant that they could keep some of it for themselves too. That is some of the officers. And we've discovered now that the environment that the police live in, their housing, um, the benefits they get is really quite poor. So you have a situation whereby you have officers who are poorly paid, not motivated, live in squalor, and you give them a gun. So they tell themselves, 
perhaps I can threaten someone a little bit and get something to feed myself and my family. That does not justify the violence that we've seen in terms of the way they've handled suspects and how they've targeted the young population. But it gives you an idea of the, what, what operates in their mind, uh, what they see, and this need that they feel that you know they need to do something. And sadly, complaints that have been made against the police and this unit in particular have not gotten the kind of uh, response for the leadership to say, you know, stop a lot of this. Let's improve the welfare of the police and let's ensure those who are committing these atrocities are brought to justice. They just look away. It's almost like as if because they know they're not providing for them. So if they turn bad or turn rogue, they look the other way. And that is why we're saying it's really time to end the impunity within the police mm -hmm. and to overhaul the entire system so that the police get the resources they need in order to do their job. The system works so that those who abuse their, their power are brought to justice and that victims actually get some support as they engage with the system. Because reprisals are real. If you report an officer, you are scared that um, if, if he doesn't get disciplined properly or if, if something happens to him, he's going to come looking for you. And there's no protection for the victims and witnesses afterwards. So it's quite a serious situation because yes. regardless of your status, and this is where young people's case is quite unique, because in Nigeria, people will say things like, if you have money, you can buy your way out of any trouble with the police. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. But for young people, they're specifically targeted because they know their parents will look for money anywhere to get them out, right? So it became a sort of money-making extortion ring, right? And also because people are also scared about the rising insecurity. For a long time, people thought, okay, maybe they're just trying to do their job. So it was the extrajudicial executions that really got to us. When we did our research, we found out that quite a lot of people were missing. And there was a lot of setup whereby people are accused of being armed robbers or involved with drugs, which is not true. But you can't prove it because they are dead and there's no body to take to court to defend the case. So it's just a cycle of um, a gamut of wrongdoing that mm. um, I think has led to this current state of, um, you know, enough is enough. Yeah, it sounds really layered, but, you know, tragic. Nonetheless, you know, it's been reported that the Nigerian police have killed nearly a dozen people since the start of protests yeah. to in SARS and President Muhammadu Buhari has recently called for an end to SARS, but it seems it's just being rebranded. What does this mean? What does the, the rebranded version mean? Is it just as dangerous? What do people really want? People want the police to respect other people and not use their power to intimidate them. A lot of people say, look, we recognize that there are criminal elements in society. So we want the police to be able to function well. For that to happen, we need a bit of transparency into how they are recruited, what sort of training they get, uh, where they are posted, um, how do they report um, cases when they arrest people, who monitors them. It seems, it seems like there are too many gaps that is allowing a lot of things to um, get lost um, in the process. So... In ending SARS was to say, look, we don't want this kind of unit that has perpetrated all kinds of abuses um, and impunity. 
And we want the officers that have committed these crimes to be held to account. How do you do that? You identify them, you investigate, and then those who are found wanting, you prosecute. Then going forward, because we still have a problem of high crime, especially in city areas, um, you still need to train officers, specialized officers in modern techniques and intelligence in order to do the work. You gotcha. as a police, you get your act together and do that. Whatever you choose to call them is your business, literally, but you have a duty and an obligation to keep us safe and to keep our environment safe. So for us, it's like, give us, we want to see what it is you want to do. So just telling us you're changing it to something else does not make sense. Right. It's like you're just replacing jam with jelly. Yeah. So people are not really interested in that. And you've not come out clearly to say those who have been identified, we're going to punish them. We want to hear names. We want them to name people. We want them to name units. There are some notorious units in particular places in the country that people are aware of. We want the government to own it and say, yes, we, we've heard that these units are notorious. And we've shut it down. And all the officers, especially the commanding officers, have been summoned to face a panel. We're not getting those concrete things. So people say, look, you banned SARS earlier this year, February 2020. In 2019, you did the same. 2018, you did the same. 2017, you did the same. 2015, it happened again. But sadly, the violence that has been happening in Nigeria is disheartening. Despite the orders from the IG of police that SARS has been disbanded, officers should respect law and order. They're just doing what they like because they think it's still business as usual. It seems like there needs to be some sort of mind shift. You know, it's 2020 now, and one key difference is this finally feels like a worldwide phenomenon. But we've experienced instances when Americans have taken an interest in affairs in Africa. I mean, how can we all forget the viral Joseph Kony videos from years ago? What are your views on the U.S. response to the protests in Nigeria? And what's your advice to ensure that Americans' interests don't fall off as the news cycle shifts and turns and intensifies? Definitely. I think Black Lives Matter really helped raise consciousness about the spate of police brutality and violence across the world. And many Africans related to that. In fact, we developed our own hashtags, African Lives Matter, Nigerian Lives Matter during that period. So I think America kind of led in a way some of the agitations we're seeing today because people saw how people came out and said, enough is enough in America. We want justice. Stop killing us. Stop killing our young. So for us, it's also about finding those linkages because we might be in different worlds apart. And this is what COVID also taught us. We're all connected. Yes, we're in different parts of the world, but we are all connected. So even on this issue, if we can get it right, then it means that we'll be setting the standards in terms of policing all over the world and especially policing of assemblies. And then for the rest of the world, it's also about how does what happened in Nigeria reflect on our humanity? How do we support and collaborate with each other? And so it, the, the support has been overwhelming. It has brought international attention to us. And so now it's also about ensuring that the world does not rest until we get some sort of resolution. It's a bit similar to the Bring Back Our Girls too. Remember mm -hmm. six years ago mm -hmm. when yes, yes. the Chibo girls were taken from school? It was when there was international attention and they pushed for it. We got the UN interested. We got everybody. Influencers came in to say, look, 
calling on the president of Nigeria to do something. And eventually, certain things started changing. That was when we were able to get some of the safer school policies, also issues around um, what needed to be done. The attention of the girl child came to the fore again. So it's about using those moments to create positive change across the world and taking lessons from that so that a year from now, we should be able to look back and say, this is what we achieved and this is what we, we learned and then get those exchanges um, across borders so that we can leave it because this is history. This is an historical defining moment and we all are living it right now. So we should be able to capture those lessons for future generations to say, yes, when there was injustice, we stood up for something. Yes. And this is how we did it. Mm. I really appreciate you speaking to like the universality of anti-Black violence and also the connection between protests in the United States and Nigeria. There is like a direct connection between some of the oppressive policing in the U.S. and Nigeria. I want to credit uh, the Washington Post editor, Karen Ataya, for noting that U.S. police forces from Virginia, who recently deployed violent policing tactics against protesters protesting against the killing of George Floyd, they actually trained Nigerian police in 2017. Wow. So can you kind of speak to us about the implications of these kind of relationships between U.S. policing forces and mm -hmm. Nigerian policing forces? And what do we stand to lose potentially through these kind of oppressive relationships? Hmm. It's very interesting that you raised that point because when we look at, for example, the pattern of torture, the methods of torture that um, we document in our reports, we had to check um, ourselves sometimes because we look at also similar experiences in the US, in Malaysia and elsewhere. And we mm -hmm. tell them, is there a torture uh, lookbook? Because it seems like they also exchange while they're busy training them on what you need to do. It's like they're also training them on, okay, if, if, if you're not getting what you want, you can slap them a bit like right, this. Yes. Um, so, so it's funny. They learn the good and the bad, the whole package. Um, and also it's about how do we ensure that when you are sharing your expertise with another group, that you are also committing to the human rights principle. And it's, and it's very important because the U.S. prides itself as the number one country for human rights democracy. And so it's also about how do you ensure that the values that your state institutions, especially your security institutions, pass on is consistent with the values that your society upholds. And how do we also ensure that when you come into a community where there's been widespread abuses and human rights violations, that the guiding principle is first on ensuring that the values are entrenched from the beginning, mm. and two, that you are able to hold each other accountable. I know it's a bit tricky when it involves foreign relations because you don't want to interfere too much in the affairs of another country. But how do we ensure that in a committee of nations that we are all united in a value-based response to security management? Because a lot of the insecurity we're seeing is not so much because there's just crime everywhere and criminals just want to appear, but because of the socioeconomic problems in those communities and also because government is not responsive to its people. So if it comes from a value-based proposition. I think that would change. And if we say, look, you can't be training 
officers and then after you leave they're perpetrating human rights abuses there needs to be some sort of maybe annual or exchange whereby they reinforce those values rather than gotcha. the negatives because we know it's there but then reinforce the good more than the bad mm. lastly why is it important for folks especially black folks throughout the diaspora to understand what's going on in nigeria right now Oh, it's super important because we're seeing a revival about Black identity and also about Africanness. And there's all these conversations about who we are and our role in the world. And also, interestingly, when you look at, for example, the COVID response, Africa seems to be the continent that got the best end of the stick. You know, mm -hmm. initially, everyone thought, oh, the worst is going to come. Let them know. <laughs> People are going to be dying like flies on the streets of Africa. We are all in panic. But we seemed to have survived the worst of the worst. And this raising questions, some have argued it's because we have a young population of young people. But I also think it's because we're still one of the green continents. We're, we're the greenest continent in the world. Mm -hmm. And people still eat a lot of organic and people still do a lot of um, traditional, you know, healthy way of living. So it's it means that Africa has a lot to offer to the world. And that if we look back even in terms of um, our black um, and African and Afro descendants all over the world, you would see that when it comes to creativity, inventions, whether it's in the sciences, in the arts, Africans and Afro descendant people are connected with one thing. Mm -hmm. It's there. But for some reason, we don't market that. It's not visible it always seems to be the negative part that comes in. So we are rising and we are seeing an Afro-futuristic world where mm -hmm. African people all over the I world like are being able to claim their place and role in society. And it's also coming at a time where we're also seeing women being visible, vocal, emerging. It's, it's been a sense of pride for me personally to see a lot of the young women leading and supporting in the protest. And so it means we have the opportunity of resetting the world because when we move, we're going to move together. We're going to move as men and women. We're going to move as colleagues who have experienced the worst of the worst and we believe we deserve the best of the best and we're willing to fight for it right now. And I think that's the strongest message that ties us together and which we should all be looking for. Our identity is now more visible than ever before mm. and we need to use it as a force for good. Ooh, I just got chills. I just <laughs> I got that. chills. I love that. Yes. Thank you so much, Osaya Jigo, for dropping such wisdoms and just insightful information about what's going on right now and why we need to be paying attention. Thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you so, so much. All right, y'all. So a lot's happened in the last week. I am not a Dallas Cowboys fan. I want to put that out there. I'm, I ride for my Arizona Cardinals, okay? But did y'all hear the story of Dak Prescott? I'm, I'm going to break it down for you. Dak Prescott is the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Before the season began, he was in contract negotiations. They didn't want to pay him what he thought he was owed. A lot of people said, Dak, the Dallas Cowboys is a storied organization. You can take a discount from them right now and you'll make this money on the back end with endorsements and public uh, appearances and all that. And what do you know what this man injured his ankle and ended his season? Mm. 
And will the Dallas Cowboys make up for it on the back end? Who knows? They have no obligation to do so. But it just reminds me of all the occasions in which black people are asked to devalue ourselves for the sake of the companies we work for, the organizations we belong to. And there will be no Dak Prescott discounts going forward for any of us. Just uh, just putting it out there, you know. I know that's right. That's that story is just so heartbreaking. Um, another heartbreaking story that we've been talking about is Meg Thee Stallion. You know, she got shot this year. Um, she's been going through a lot. And her story is really one that epitomizes a lot of the struggles that Black women in America have to face. And she wrote about it in the New York Times um, opinion section. And I was just so moved by this piece. I'm not sure if y'all read it, but in it, she discusses the impossible box that folks try to put Black women in, despite the fact that we are complex human beings with our own agency. You know, people try to take advantage of us and disregard our pain, disregard our stories. You know, she talks about getting shot in the foot Mm -hmm. by a man. She talks about, you know, the issues that she's faced and that so many other people have faced while evoking the names of iconic black women in history who have been doing the damn thing and, you know, show resilience from Rosa Parks and Katherine Johnson to Mm -hmm. Serena Williams and Maxine Waters, you know, literally people of yesteryear and and today who are still very much, you know, a part of that. And so the Times also dropped an accompanying video with her op-ed, which she voices alongside um, narration from one of Malcolm X's most iconic speeches about uh, Black women being most disrespected, most unprotected. Um, Let's go ahead and listen to that. She marches for everyone else, riots for everyone else, dies for everyone else. She loves everyone else, lives for everyone else. (laughs) But when it comes down to her, it ain't a mother in sight. I just think that it's so powerful that she's able to speak truth to power like this, but even still, you know, you know people gonna have some shit to say. People already have some shit to say. You know. But when I think about Megan, when I think about what she's advocating for and what black women in this nation and all over the world have to consistently advocate for, it just breaks my heart because that Malcolm X speech came out how many decades ago, right? And we're still doing it. We're Mm -hmm. still, we're, it still applies. It still applies. And it's probably going to apply for more years to come. But we have to celebrate people like Meg who will be the voice who have no problem wearing that crown and advocating for black women. So I salute her Show for this. Show it, was, it was beautiful. Shout out to Meg. I know the haters been coming at you talking about you been playing this protect black women card as if it's a meme. Girl, I know that like literally it's you. It's your story. It's our story. So girl, thank you for writing that. Words. I mean, speaking of uplifting black folks, we have to talk about Killer Mike. <laughs> we have two mm-hmm. new stories on Killer Mike. One, he started a digital banking platform called Greenwood with a friend of his named Ryan Glover. And according to CNN Business, the bank already has tens of thousands of users and the bank is for Black and Latinx people. How do y'all feel about that? I mean, you know, I'm all for Black business. We'll see how this happens. I know money is something that's really sensitive to folks and we do need more Black banks. So we'll see. We'll see about it. How you feel about it, Jahan? Yeah. In addition to black banks, though, we need more black people with money to put in those black mm-hmm. banks. So I'm definitely supportive. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. supportive of the financial institutions. But I think it's important to remember, too, that 
the existence of a bank, whether it's black owned or white owned, won't on its own save us. You know, capitalism there are will not save capitalism us. does not save not us. on its own. Right, right. And Killer Killer Mike has been a strong advocate for banking black, but in terms of the sort of salvation that we can be afforded by putting our money in a black bank, I just don't know at a time when black businesses are being shuttered at a historic rate. Um you know, salute to Killer Mike, and we support all the Black-owned financial institutions, but it really is going to take some institutional effort from the government, in addition to these private institutions, to rescue Black people from the sort of economic depression we're facing right now. Killer Mike is also winning the Changemaker Billboard Award, the award to recognize an artist or a group that speaks truth to power through their celebrity and music. Now, a lot of times when institutions like white institutions, let me be clear, when white institutions give black celebrities or black leaders an award or kind of choose our leader for us, they don't get it right. Do you think that Killer Mike deserved this award? To be honest, um, I think that I could have named so many other people who I thought were doing amazing work. Um, I could see someone like No Name, you know, she has the big the book club. She does a lot of um, work when it comes to, you know, informing black folks. I could see someone like even I don't laugh, y'all, but a young Dolph. Like that man is out here, like really putting in and giving back to his community and like uplifting black folk. So, I mean, there are just so many folks and I just want to know what the criteria was. Yeah, like, I don't know if y'all listen to Run the Jewels, um, and that's just speaking in terms of his, you know, Killer Mike's musical kind of expression, but he's definitely um, radical politically in his music, and I don't want to mm-hmm. downplay the sort of, like, progressive advocacy he's right, done in his life, but I think some of the criticism of Killer Mike's advocacy has been totally warranted, but um, I also don't know, to T's point, who was responsible for picking this. I don't know that Billboard is an authority on uh, social advocacy, so perhaps it's uh, fitting in this case that they awarded to Killer Mike. But let me tell y'all what I'm looking for this weekend, though. I know this is often a show that looks back at the week that was, but this is talking about the week that's going to be the joy I experienced after watching The Revival of Supermarket Sweep. I wish y'all could see how Jahan's face <laughs> is lighting up right now. I am gleeful. Like, he's been talking about this since August, y'all. Gleeful. Now, did y'all watch the original back in the day? I feel like it a used to come episodes. on packs. Oh, yeah, I feel like yeah. the original used to come on packs like after Touched by an Angel. So I used Bye. to, <laughs> you know. So after I got my Della Reese fix, I got my uh, Supermarket Sweep fix. And it's a lovely show. This time it's going to be hosted by Leslie Jones in the in the in the revival, originally hosted by David Ruprecht. I love watching black people run aimlessly, gleefully, unbounded through a supermarket. It is a truly unique sight, just being unencumbered by pesky supermarket <laughs> employees, hawking over your shoulder, asking you how long you're going to be in there. You, Can I help you, sir? Jahan, I don't you need help. Like I just me got here. When I'm watching Family Feud <laughs> and rooting for the black family. <laughs> I too would like to rob a supermarket. I would love to rob Walmart. I would love to rob Kroger. <laughs> I would love to rob Publix. I would love to rob all three. I mean, that. they they stocked up. Go get you a, a honey baked ham or something. Something like that. You know what else comes on this weekend? 
the finale to Lovecraft Country. And mm. I am so excited. I you still ready? don't know totally what that show is about. I don't know the plot. <laughs> ever. I'm you just so wait. moved by every episode. Every time I think I know what the show is about, I'm like, ooh. So now I got to read the book after it finishes on Sunday. But I'm so excited. I don't know what's going on. I don't, I'm not going to spoil it for any of y'all. But we we going to see. We going to see, see what happens with in that world. Mm. And I think that's that. Yeah. And that's that. And that's that for this week. Thanks to our guest, Osai Ajigo. Our show is produced and edited by Izzy Matthew Knowles Best, Nick Offenberg, Sarah Patterson, and Becca DiGregorio. I'm Jahan Jones, and you can follow me on all social media at underscore Jahan. I'm Taryn Finley. You know you can find me at underscore Taryn It Up. And you can follow your boy Shakira Romblay at R-O-M-B-L-A-Y, Romblay. We'll be back next week. Until then, keep it juicy. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.